Genesis chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 31. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. And later, God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of God for the people of God. So I'm sure that some Methodists, like some Jews, time sermons <laughs> to be sure that they don't get shortchanged. <laughs> and it's fine with me if you do. I'll tell you when to start. <laughs> because first I want to say something, and that is to thank, beginning with Reverend Wiggs, all of you and all of those who represent you for the most wonderful warm, gracious invitation and welcome, extending into the staff members with whom I was in contact over these months, and then those of you who were kind enough to greet me here, members, volunteers, and certainly the pleasure of being with Reverend Wiggs and then having the joy and honor of meeting Dr. Biggs and Mrs. Biggs who are such dear friends of dear friends of mine, Rabbi and Mrs. Sherman. And I tell you that I traveled yesterday. I came to, as Reverend Wiggs said, a semicircular sanctuary such as I preached in for 24 years. I look out and I traveled a long way to feel at home. And I'm grateful to the Barton, Clinton, Gordy, legacy and those who continue it for my presence here. You can time if you want to. <laughs> I said to God as I walked away from the grave of a young parent, why didn't you do something? No answer, as usual. I said to God as I left the room of a child who had had a bad diagnosis, why didn't you prevent that? Silence. I said to God when I had just buried a man who left no family except his aged brother, and they had lived together all their lives, and now for the first time in his early 80s, this man was going to be alone and he was frightened. And I was going on to the next funeral or wedding or baby making. And I said to God, can't you do something? Nothing. And so finally, things changed. You don't have to be a minister, a rabbi, a priest in order to recognize these people. They are all around us. Sometimes they are our friends, our relatives. Sometimes, God forbid, they are us. And as people of faith, we look to God for answers and solutions, for healing and for well-being that often do not come. So finally, I lost patience. I stopped asking, can't you do something? And I shook my fist at the heavens and I said, you do something. And a voice did come back to me. and said, you do something. 
What makes you think I can solve all the problems of the world? What makes you think I can care for every patient, cook all the meals, heal all the illnesses, provide companionship for all the shut-ins, comfort all the bereaved, and yes, keep the lights on in a poor neighborhood? Who told you I can make everything come out all right? What makes you think it's all in my hands? And I said, what makes me think so? You're God, for God's sake. <laughs> and God said, yes, I'm always there. I'm always trying. I'm always with you. But I can't do it alone. There are millions of people in need, and I'm just one. Check it out, Deuteronomy 6. You Jews say it at every service. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is what? The Lord is one. I'm one, you're billions. It's hard to argue with scripture with the author. <laughs> do not do this at home, it takes a professional. <laughs> the voice continued, he said, look, you just read it. At the end of creation, what did I say? I said, and he said it in Hebrew as he always does, he said, Vayar Elohim et kol aser tov me'od. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was tov me'od, very good. I didn't say it was perfect. Do you see? I said very good, not perfect. And that was as far as I could go without you. That's why I created you. I created human beings who will mess up my world with all their frailties, their faults, their failings. But I created you because I needed partners in what I couldn't get done in the six days. I needed partners in God's unfinished business. So I said, so when terrible things happen, when parents lose a child or tornadoes tear through Oklahoma, when war devastates civilians or hurricanes kill hundreds, you mean it's not necessarily true that it's your will? You mean that disease and hunger, homelessness and violence are simply works in progress? Not your decree, but your unfinished business? And God said, do you really think I would create a world willingly with childhood cancer that necessitated in my Memphis a St. Jude's Hospital? Do you really think I created a world intending a civil war over years and years in Syria? Do you really think I decreed terrorist bombings and devastating floods? Do you really want to say, that's God's will? And that's where God and I left it. That God created us to be partners in the continuing work of creation partners in bringing an imperfect world closer to perfection, and that we are, in a sense, like hands of a clock. We each do different things, God and we. We move at different speeds. We are of different size. But if either hand of the clock doesn't work, the clock doesn't either. So I understood three things that I share with you. In times of pain or loss or suffering, when we say why, we don't really want an explanation. If God were to come to us personally and explain why did a young parent die, why did a child have a life-threatening illness, why are some people left lonely and helpless, 
by senseless acts of violence. If God came and said, here's why, would it alleviate one moment of the suffering, pain, and loss? Would we say, I no longer hurt, now it's okay, now I understand. When we ask why bad things happen, what we really mean is, where do I take comfort, and who is with me? When my father died at the age of 58, I remember thinking that no explanation from God would say to me, oh, now it's okay. Second, logically an all-powerful and all-good God must, in rigid logic, make a perfect world. But we experience a world with pain, with sorrow, with evil. We experience a world that is blemished. Some say it's because we simply don't know God's plan. And in God's plan, what we see as evil is good. And for some, that is a comfort. God bless them. They should have the strength of that faith. Others say that we must experience the bad to appreciate the good. If that is comforting, God bless those for whom it is comfort. And still others say that the evil of the world is by and large the result of human free will. But if we didn't have free will, we'd just be just another cow in the pasture. So do we trade in perfect world for human free will? If that satisfies someone's need, God bless them. But for some of us, we still go looking elsewhere. We look for how to move on with God, still loving God, still feeling closer to God, not bitter, not cynical, not without faith, even though the world that God should have made perfect isn't. And that was when the idea that God is all good but not all powerful, that God is like this. When you're a little kid, you really believe your parents can do anything. That shatters when you have a broken toy and you bring it to a father or a mother and you say, fix this. And they say, it can't be fixed. Your parent still loves you. God willing, you still love your parent. You go on from there. But now you know your parent cares, but can't always make it right. Can't always make it right. A dear friend of mine lost his daughter to cancer at the age of 40. She left a husband and young children. Within hours of her death, his response was, we have to raise funds for research to eradicate cancer. And he went on to do it. But what was most interesting to me is that he continued to pray to and to give thanks to what he called the man upstairs. He was able not to be bitter, cynical, not to take the advice of Job's wife, who said to Job in his suffering, curse God and die. He could look on the one hand with the tragedy of his loss, and the other he could say, and now we're going to do something to keep other people from suffering it, and I'll still thank God for my blessings. And that leads to the third thing I understand. The third thing I understand is that counterintuitive as it sounds, I can still pray to God even if I don't believe God can always answer my prayer, yes. 
I am able to thank God for the good I experience and pray to God for anything I hope for, even as I believe that God cannot make it come out always all right. I once told a brilliant young man, a then law student at Yale, about my theology, my belief in a God of limited power. But then I also told him about the prayer I say every time I get on a plane, because I went two and a half years with a phobia about flying. So my prayer, I'll share it with you, I said it twice yesterday. <coughs> May this plane fly safely, not only for me, but for everyone aboard, not only for those who need or love me, but those who need or love anyone aboard, and may all planes flying today fly safely. Every time I fly, last 51 years. So he looked at me and he said, you're committing intellectual suicide. Oh, I was pretty impressed. I went to the University of Cincinnati. He was at Yale. <laughs> I thought about it. I said, yeah, you know, you're right. So what? Uh, that is to say, I'm willing to be inconsistent. I'm willing to trade off. I understand that God can't keep a plane up if the laws of physics say the plane is going down. But I can thank God and I can pray to God because I thought about God as the parent who loves me or as the friend who occasionally doesn't come through for us, but the friendship is so strong that we still prize it and cherish it and it isn't damaged. That's the kind of God with whom I share God's unfinished business. I thought that it was worth it to have a friend and parent who cares and yet not expect of God what life so often doesn't provide. I can still believe when things go wrong that God is still mine, my friend, my parent. Whatever our theology, our understanding of God, all-powerful or limited, totally in control or unable to solve all problems, the obligation is the same. I say, my grandson is going to be nine months old next week, thank God. I say, my grandson will be nine months old next week, God willing, and I have no concern about intellectual suicide. No matter what God you believe in, the obligation is still the same. We know God's unfinished business. That is not a faith, that is a fact. And so we are partners in doing it. Some of us can do great things. There are people with the kind of skill, talent, education, knowledge, inspiration, who can find a cure for polio, who can lead us down the path to a cure for cancer, who can develop enormous new techniques for this or that or the other, and thank God for them. Some people, some of us can help to reduce homelessness by things like Habitat for Humanity. It doesn't take much talent, but it does a world of good. Some of us can work in alleviating hunger, think food banks, food vouchers, school meals, better farming techniques, God's unfinished business being done by the business of our living. And sometimes it doesn't take any expertise or skill at all. Resources most of us don't have. Even then, when we encounter pain or suffering, we can always do something. 
Sometimes we join others to change systems in our society that bring injustice and suffering. But maybe we only do the simple things. The hands that can type on a computer or the thumbs that can manipulate the iPhone, those hands and thumbs, they can write a note to someone recently bereaved or recently ill that will make their day. The hands that cook a meal for a family in their own kitchen are the hands that can cook a meal for a shut-in or someone newly back from the hospital and in need of care. The car that drives to the ball game or the theater is the car that can give a ride to someone who needs to go to a doctor for treatment every week or every month. We all have the talent to do God's unfinished business. I want to close with a story I first heard from Rabbi Harold Kushner, who wrote the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. A 10-year-old boy was late coming home for school. His parents were concerned, and when he got home, they said, why are you late? And he said, well, I came across a second grader, and he had fallen off his bike, and his bike was broken, and he was crying. So I stopped to help him. His parents said, you helped him? What do you know about fixing a bike? He said, I didn't help him fix the bike. I helped him cry. I helped him cry. If we can do nothing else, when we encounter suffering and pain and sorrow, we can help them cry. That, incidentally, is how this sheet of paper ends, but I still have a minute and a half. <laughs> and I couldn't have written the rest of it until I had been here. Talked with Reverend Wiggs, read your bulletin, met the people, listened to what you called your missions, heard about what the people of this church do before I ever told them to be God's unfinished business partners. Wonders that you never, you already knew it before I came. And I thought to myself, when I came here, I had seen pictures and heard of the glory and the beauty of your building. But having been here now, I understand that when someone says what a beautiful building you have, you and God can say, if you love their building, wait till you see their people, my partner.